This is the Maxiao Leadership Podcast. One of the things that we know, again, leaders, leadership is all about, you know, being change agents, you know, and according to studies, we've, we've seen that 70% of change initiatives fail. So when I see a lot of the retrospective of things that didn't go well, you could always trace it back to the people they had around them. You could trace it back to their inner circle, to the people they trusted. The key to the trusted advisor is treat them like an equal, surround yourselves with people. My guest today is a fascinating leader who joins us from Portland, Oregon. Dr. Richard Osibanjo is a leading expert, author, executive coach, program facilitator, and keynote speaker in transformational leadership and senior team performance. His work centers on helping senior leaders energize their organization with bold transformational strategies that unlock human potential and new market growth. He currently serves as Director of Organizational Transformation and Chief of Staff at Intel Corporation. Dr. Osibanjo holds a PhD in chemistry from the University of California. But today, he is going to talk to us about a different kind of chemistry. In a recent article published on Forbes, Dr. Osibanjo presents the leadership lens, which refers to the seven people leaders need around them to improve the understanding of themselves and of the situation they are dealing with in order to make better decisions. Without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Richard Osibanjo. Welcome, Richard, for joining us. And I want to say really thank you for making the time for our audience today. Thanks, Max, for having me. I don't take opportunities like this for granted, so I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. Um, maybe before we dive into the, the content, uh, w- would you mind introducing yourself to our audience and share a bit about your background, uh, please, Richard? So I have an interesting background, considering the fact, you know, very technical. I had my PhD in chemistry. Today at Intel, I'm an org development leader working with our senior leaders to make sure we create organizations whereby people can bring them best selves and accelerate the results that we truly want at Intel. So, and also outside of Intel, I'm a Marshall Goldsmith Top 100 coach as well. Then I also work with leaders both within the US and also internationally to prepare the next generation of leaders for the future. Wow, this is really impressive. I guess. Uh, I should say really Dr. Richard, shouldn't I? Come on, Max, you're, you're my own personal <laughs> doctor, so it's, it's, it's fine, it's fine. <laughs> well, I find that really fascinating, and that, that's going really to be my, my first question, really. How, how, how do we go from uh, doctor in chemistry into organizational development? That itself is another podcast, so I'm going to keep it as short as possible. I think ultimately, for me, it's been a journey of purpose. You know, and one of my mentors, Miles, late Miles, Dr. Miles Monroe, often says that, you know, when purpose is not known, abuse is inevitable. And my spin to it is, when purpose is known, success is inevitable. So ultimately, I, you know, I don't see myself totally leaving the technical or the science aspect. So what I tell people is that I move from the science of things to the science of people. So it's still all about the connection. So that was the transition, but ultimately it was about finding my purpose. I needed to be a fish inside of water. 
I needed to get my whole floor. And ultimately for me is reducing that gap in terms of who you are and what you do. You know, is the who, what gap. And I think ultimately once people can align who they are to what they do, I think it gives them higher fulfillment, job satisfaction, and they're able to thrive in what they do. Wow, that, that's great. I can really relate into that. I know when I share with people about, you know, doing these leadership podcasts and writing about leadership, first reaction is, oh, you are a finance person. How, how do you get into leadership? And <laughs> uh, this is this has always been a passion of mine and uh, I really, really uh, can relate to that. So that leads me to my next question, really, which is, what is your definition of leadership? Great question. You know, ultimately, I don't think there's any one definition. You know, for me, it's been a person that people want to follow. And when I talk about follow, I don't mean followership. I mean, being able that you inspire people to want to do something, not because they have to, but because they want to, because they see the bigger picture. So that's what I would look at leadership, because a leader, it's a being a leader can, is a title. Leadership is actions. What are the actions you take? What is the mindset that you have that inspires people to want to go in a particular direction to achieve a particular result? So that's how I would look at, you know, leader leadership. You know, I, I really very much enjoy your your articles on Forbes and, uh, you know, everything that you write there. And I think it's very inspiring. And in particular, you know, one of your recent articles, you were talking about the leadership lens. And um, that, that, that's what I would like us to explore over the next few minutes in, in this podcast. But can you share with us, you know, what is the leadership lens and why do you think that is important for, for leaders? I'm blessed and I have an opportunity to work with some of the most senior leaders, you know, either within Intel or even outside, you know, Fortune 500 leaders outside of Intel. And one of the things that I have seen through my experience is that time is never enough. You know, executives have more work to do than the time that they have. And more often than not, they often have to prioritize what they need to get done. So more and more, they have to rely on the people around them, trusted people around them to get insights and to make decisions based on those. And from my observation is that when you trace some decisions, at times, or even some very significant decisions that are made is typically dependent on the quality of the data that they get. So if that data by itself, it has bias in it. So just think of the results that are going to come out from that. So that's one of the things is that our leaders, as you know, leaders super busy, whether from the C-suite, organizational leaders, managers of managers, if they don't get the right information, if they don't have the right people around them, who have a very broad lens of where they are drawing their sources of information in, they actually will be doing the leader a disservice, not because they plan to do so, but unintentionally. So that's why, you know, it's a big focus because we live in a volatile, uncertain, you know, complex environment. So it's really important that with the little time our leaders have, they have quality data to make the right decisions. No, I absolutely agree. And that, 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 that has always been one of uh, the challenge for myself. You know, I, identify myself a lot as uh, an analytical person who like to analyze the informations. And sometimes it can be daunting where you have to make a decision with very little information available. And uh, so you, you are always uh, feel as a leader, as much as you want to have the broad lens, sometimes have to go with 
what you have. So how, 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 what has been your experience with the leaders that you, you coach and you work with in terms of, you know, operating sometime with a lens that could be blurred? How, 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 how do they manage that kind of situation? The work we do from a leadership perspective is more art than science or best it's, you know, it's, it's a mixture. There are some challenges that come with that. So I was reading a book recently and it talks about what happened during 9-11. And that during 9-11, some, some organizations, whether it was the you know, FBI, some people further down the organization had gotten information that an attack was imminent. But that information was meant to be passed to a different department or unit. But because it came further down in the department, it wasn't taken as seriously. Also, in that same book, they gave another example of Enron. From Enron, somebody had mentioned that some certain things are not looking right. You know? But again, because the information came from below in the organization, that information wasn't taken seriously because the leaders felt if this thing was so important, I as the leader of the organization had to know. And if I did not know that, you know, then probably it's not as important. They are not consciously thinking that, it's an unconscious thing. So, it be, so working with leaders, it depends on the culture which they surround themselves with that really enables people to be able to bring that roar, that boldness, that confidence to the table. So it is tricky, you know? So I don't think leaders come into a room to say, hey, I'm the smartest person in the room. I know all of this. But again, consciously, unconsciously, the environment they create around themselves will lend to how people tend to show up. I think that that's uh, going to take us to maybe going into how you came about to write this article. What, what, what's the story behind, behind it? You know, what, what was the inspiration that led you into writing about the leadership lens? And um, how, how did you learn about the, what you shared in that, in that article? One of the things that we know, again, leaders, leadership is all about you know, being change agents. You know? And according to studies, we've, we've seen that 70% of change initiatives fail. And just even looking at the leaders I work with, even looking at leaders in the environment, both inside of my day job and outside of my day job, you know, when I'm in, especially in coaching sessions, you're able to just begin to step back and you just begin to see a pattern of things that are forming. Because what leaders, they have very limited time and ultimately what they hear begins to form a perception and a mindset in their minds and it ultimately determines the action. So when I see a lot of the retrospective of things that didn't go well, you could always trace it back to the people they had around them. You could trace it back to their inner circle, to the people they trusted. And in many instances, it wasn't as if, it wasn't like the inner circle wasn't adequate or competent, but it wasn't just expansive and inclusive. It didn't cover a lot of territory. And those were where I saw that a lot of the things were going wrong. Can you walk us through then that inner circle? How should it look like? Who should we have around the table? Absolutely. You know, one of the first things I did mention, you know, Max, at the beginning of this is, is the aspect of culture. And typically, I, I, this is how I explain culture to, you know, leaders, anyone I speak with, is that, you know, culture definitely is an output, is an outcome of how people work and how things get done. And culture, I would define it as, you know, both of us are putting on our jackets right now. Just imagine if the, the temperature of the room goes to about 70 or 75 you know, degrees Fahrenheit. What are we going to do? Nobody has to tell you and I that. Automatically, we begin to take off our jackets. 
all of a sudden, if the temperature drops to 60 degrees Fahrenheit, we want to put our jackets back on. That is culture. Culture is that thing, you know, that controls people's behavior. You don't have to tell them, right? right? So if leaders see themselves as the custodians of culture, mm -hmm. as the custodians of people around them, then that would enable them to not go into the seven you know, people, leaders you have around them. And one of the first ones I have there is the trusted advisor. Right. And of course, from a trusted advisor perspective, you know, leaders work with a ton of people, whether they work with their, you know, their HR, whether they work with finance, whether they work with legal, whether they work with ops, you know, they have their chief of staffs, you know, they have a lot of people and also they have their executive leadership team around mm -hmm. them. Now, the important thing about these trusted advisors, when I was going back to culture earlier on, is the quality of the information you hear from them most of the time depends on the environment you create. So let's say, for example, you're in a meeting, right? Some of this, you know, I've experienced, like I said, I'm not talking from any one perspective, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's Intel or outside of meeting, I'm just giving a general perspective. You're in a meeting and a leader says something and somebody has a contrary opinion or something very different to that meeting. But it's obvious either through the response of the leader or the body language or what happens to the person three or four or five weeks after that, that that itself was not welcome. So unconsciously, the leader has said, I am not somebody who should be challenged. So right. guess what, what happens after that? So when the leader asks for feedback, you know, people are just going to reinforce what the leader has said. Even um, Patrick Lencioni, you know, in his book, in the five dysfunctions of a team, he gave the example of the CEO, you know, when people asked and everybody you know, just said, oh, you're right. Because the one person who spoke up got into trouble. Absolutely. So, and the key to trusted advisors is you have to see your trusted advisors as equals. Mm -hmm. Nothing less. They're your equal partners. When you treat somebody as an equal partner, then it's not about serving you. It's about making sure the organization is successful. So whether they're not concerned about you know, pampering your ego, your pride. I don't want to hurt this person. They are pushing the organization front and foremost. So the secret to having trusted advisors around you, first of all, surround yourself with people you respect. Mm -hmm. That if they say something, they can take a pause to listen. If you don't respect somebody around you, their opinions, their thoughts, then you're doing yourself a disservice. So when they speak, you can see them as equal partners. That's so true. And I think it's a lot to do with the leader's ability to to listen and to, to, to welcome those uh, diverse uh, views around them. Uh, because, you know, as so, someone says, you know, if, 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 you, if you surround yourself with people and you don't want to listen to them, you will end up having people who have nothing to say because you, you don't listen to them. So no, absolutely, no, that, that, that's great. But then you also talk, so that was the first person to, to to surround yourself with, and you talk as a second person being the coach. Can, can, can you tell us about the coach as being the second person important for that leadership lens? One of the things I will mention regarding the coach is when you look, when you're driving, there's a you have your side mirrors, you have your rear, you know, your rear view mirror as well. Imagine taking a trip and you don't have any of those things, right? You don't have your side view, your side view mirror, you don't have your rear view mirror because each and every one of us has a blind spot, whether we like it or not. So one of the essence of what the coach does is to help you through that process. They're not solving it for you because you have the answers that are inside coming from you. 
And the second thing I will also mention regarding the coaches, think of the best athletes in the world. You know, whether we're talking about Simon Biles, you know, to um, Ronaldo, you know, in, in the soccer field to LeBron James, just think of the best players in the world. They all have coaches. Mm. Why is that? It's because they understand that with a coach, they can go further and faster working with somebody else because somebody is helping them go through their blind spots. So now my question is, if all these best athletes in the world have coaches, the very best, even the Serena, the Williams sisters, they have coaches, what's our excuse or the leader's excuse for not having one? Having a coach is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength that you recognize that you can do better working with someone. Like somebody said, when you stand on the shoulder of a giant, you see further. And I think there's something in, uh, in the coach as well that some, sometimes people misunderstand and they're thinking that, uh, and I don't know what your take on that is, who, who will be a, be a best coach? Because you give the example in sport and it's true that, you know, if you take uh, Roger Federer at the peak of his career, it was best tennis player arguably some people will say uh, of his generation you know don't ask uh, fans of um, Rafael Nadal but their coach whether it's Nadal or Federer they probably are not people who have won so many grand chelem that they have done so what makes a great coach is people who have done the same or how, how do we identify who, who could be a coach for a leader you're a CEO who, is your, who will be your best coach for, for the CEO or for a CISO's executive? That's an interesting question, Max, because um, if, you know, you see a CEO, you know, they are looking for a coach, is it advisable to get, you know, if a CEO, former coach who has been, been a CEO because they understand your time constraints, they understand the pressure on the job, they understand everything. Is that an added advantage? Absolutely no questions asked. If you had somebody who cannot relate to what you're doing or what you're saying, they might not understand the import you know, of what you're going through. So having someone definitely who has some form of experience in an area that you're in, in some leadership capacity is also an added bonus, no question asked. When I'm looking at coaches, one of the things I usually recommend, you know, to my clients is when you're looking for a coach, you are really thinking about buying a pair of shoes and in buying a pair of shoes and think of these shoes that you're going to use to, you're going to walk 30 miles, hundred miles in this pair of shoes. At that point in time, you're going to be looking for something. Does it fit one? And number two, because it's a journey, is it comfortable? Right. Those two things must align. Does it fit? And the fit might be, what's their level of experience? You know, what kind of exposure have they had before? The other thing is, is it comfortable? Do we have a chemistry? Do we have a connection? Because I'm really going to be opening up to this person. You know, do I respect this person? Do I trust this person? So those two things must come together in order for you to, you know, find your coach. And also going back to the competence question you asked about is if I need, you know, if I have a toothache, I'm not going to go and meet a gardener. Right. Mm -hmm. If I have a toothache, I'm going to see a dentist. If I have an eye thing, I'm going to be seeing an optometrist, you know, an op you know, an op ophthalmologist. So those are the two things I'm going to be looking at. No, absolutely. No, that, that's really great. So then, so that was the second uh, person. So, you know, we talked about the trusted advisor, you've got the coach. And then the third one, you talk about the sage. This is a big word. Yes. And I, I think I use the word sage because, you know, when you look at sage, you say the person is wise, you know, when you look at, and I don't necessarily mean the person is smarter than you, because in today's world, 
you know, you have to have a mixture of things coming together. No one person has the answer. But the sage perspective I'm coming from is more of somebody who has been where you want to go. So they have insights, whether it's of failures or successes that you don't have to go through to get there. Because mm. wherever any one of us wants to go in this world, somebody else has been there before. So you don't have to waste time recreating the will. You can just tap and lean into these people to help you through. Somebody you can just say who gets what you're going through, who has been there before or who has valuable insights is what I would call, you know, the sage. One of the leaders I work with likes to say that, you know, you can learn the hard way, but the cheapest, there's a cheaper way of learning, which is learning through other people's experience. Now, at the same time, I've observed that, you know, even in myself, sometimes it's hard for people to learn from other people's experience. You know, if you just have to be, have been a parent to see with your own children, trying to, you know, steer them through some experience, but sometimes people find it difficult to learn really from other people's experience. I don't know what, what has been your, 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 uh, your observation with people you work with. How, how, how do they, what would you recommend leaders to, to look for when they are looking for comparable experience and that so that they can hear the voice of the sage who is uh, advising them? We need to look at, we can break a sage into two, two sages. There's the internal sage, even from a coaching perspective, whereby we have the answers right inside of us. But the reason why we don't tap enough into that stage is because we never make time to listen to it. And so that means that if I want to be a leader who is growing, then I have to find some time for introspection to reflect. Because knowledge is not what helps, it's applied knowledge. Right. And those insights come through introspection. So that's one stage. In the second stage, whereby I'm looking at what other people have gone through, yes, there could be an argument to say, both of us are two different people. If, if we've gone through the same things, your personality, your temperament, the environment might be different from mine. So the thing from there is to understand that, yes, not every experience is the same, but even if I use the microscope, what is there to learn from this? And that takes us to the fourth view, the, the fourth uh, lens, the first four person around the table, the leader. And there are many of them. You're talking about the minority voices. Who are those minority voices? You know, the reason why I use minority voices is that when you look at the, in any organization, you have, you know, the leadership team, typically you know, the next leadership team level down. Typically, I'll say they make about five, 10% of the organization. You now have 80% of the people further down who kind of do the work. The decisions that are being made typically is made by this top five, 10% that affects the remaining 80% of the people who do the work. Now, when we look at the concept of leadership, going back to my original definition, you want to inspire people in a particular direction because they want to, not because you told them to. And one of the things we do is that when we look at our personal relationships, the people who are closest to us, again, employees are also human beings. They have feelings because they have title employees does not dehumanize them. For your minority voices, the employees, how much time do you give to listen to what they say? Mm -hmm. Because most times, you know, the leadership team often hears the voices either through surveys, you know, town hall meetings. And again, these meetings are typically few and far in between. And if you want to inspire people, then they need to know they've been heard. They need to know that their voice matters. But this is the same set of people, 80% of the people that we don't give enough of attention to. 
and they are the people responsible for the output that goes through the door. So that this for me is one of the most underdeveloped, underutilized, you know, voices in an organization. And even if you hear them or you read those reports, have you let them know that I hear you, I see you, and I feel you? That's what you know makes people feel important. So these really people will will not always be brought to the boardroom or the, the, you know is to make sure that all the voice in the organization are heard and really follow through you know what one of the CEO I worked uh, I worked with and I really like he had this concept of creating like a shadow board um, with millennium uh, so you have and, and then you know it will it will have this board of people share with them some of the strategic initiative in your organization and and get them to reflect on it and come up with some solution to, to, to the organization. And I found that that was really effective. And it was also a very effective way of developing talent throughout the organization. Yes, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. We just, leaders just need to find a way to make sure that this 80% of the employees are just being carried along. And even let's just, let's just tap in, you know, the man of the hour right now, Zelensky. One of the things we see about Zelensky is Zelensky as a former comedian and as a former actor, there's one superpower he has. He has an ability to connect with people's heads and heart. As a comedian, if you can't get your audience to laugh, you don't have a job, right? So, but this guy, Zelensky has been extremely successful. So just think of how he's used that superpower to become the president of Ukraine and think about how he's using that power right now to influence the world. You see him speaking to governments, you see him on social media speaking to the youth, you see him on TV going to the hospitals to visit people. That picture, like, I'm not just for the top. He's saying, no, I connect, I'm a leader for the top. I'm a leader for the people doing the organization. I'm a leader for everyone. It's such a powerful, powerful concept, you know, that people can relate to that leader. It, it just takes it to a totally different level. No, absolutely. And he's uh, really, really doing a very hard job at this time, you know, looking after the people of Ukraine and uh, yeah, our hearts and thoughts are really with, with, with them at this difficult time. And that takes us to the confidence with the next uh, uh, person that you have on your leadership lens. Can you take us through about the confident? Who is the confident for the leader? So when I was thinking about and processing this through the experiences, you know, one might argue that want your trusted advisors, your confidence as well, you know? And the question is, there may be, there are going to be instances though, that there's going to be a conflict of interest with somebody who is a confident and your trusted advisor. If you're thinking of doing a restructuring, if you're thinking of a big change coming and it's going to affect one of your confident, your trusted advisors, confiding in that person is going to, could be biasing. That's why if they are doing an operation, they don't advise medical doctors to operate on their own children because there's a lot of emotion that could cloud judgment at that point in, in, in time. So your confidence are people who have no stake in the game that's how I separate a confident from a trusted advisor. They have nothing to gain other than you being extremely successful. It doesn't affect them directly. And the people you can totally, you know, pour yourself out to without having to hold anything back. No, no, I agree with you. I agree with that because at the end of the leader is a, is a person and uh, is a human being. Sometimes a lot of people talk about the leader being, being very lonely at the top. And, uh, I like to say it doesn't have to be lonely. And actually you need to make sure that you, you're not alone 
uh, at the top and uh, having this this uh, confident these people to to lean into is is really really important, uh, I think. Um, Absolutely. And then I like the sixth one that you you listed. You know, the Goliath. Who is the Goliath for for the leader? Like the minority voices. Your minority voices are you know I think is one of the most underdeveloped uh, muscles in organizations. This is the second one to it, because with this this shows the kind of the kind of leader, I would say the caliber of leader that you are, because I was reading a book recently, I'm not sure whether it was Whitney Johnson or somebody, I was reading a book recently that talks about, you know, the A plus leaders and the B and the C leaders. A plus leaders welcome a challenge because they realize that there's something they are missing and these people who have alternative viewpoints will bring all those things to the surface. So they surround themselves with such people so they can really think things through. B plus and C plus leaders, on the other hand, are a bit insecure and they don't want people to challenge them. So they suppress those voices. And when they spoke about, you know, um, I, I believe it was Abraham Lincoln at the time in terms of how he brought a lot of his rivals to the leadership table, because one thing he knew was that even though his rivals and him thought very differently, one thing he couldn't question was that each of these people wanted the country to su be successful. So rather than it becoming I and them, you know, me versus you, it's more like let's tap onto these best thoughts processes and let the truth surface. The truth is always going to be somewhere in the middle. But the question is, are you confident enough in your leadership ability that you don't feel threatened by people who have different voices or different opinions to the table? And I will say that this is where I have seen that I've seen many leaders switch over to positional leadership, either because they don't have the patience, at times leaders want to work extremely fast, or they think that they've all aligned on something and they don't really want to take time to bring that either one or few lonely voices behind and they switch into the position. And I often think it's a mistake because that person, again, the goal here is not consensus. The goal is not always consensus, is but at Inter we say something about disagree and commit. In order for me to disagree and commit, I need to feel heard. Absolutely. So that is a key thing. So even if you're not going to go in the way of the different opinions, but at least let people know that you've genuinely had them. And I think when people do that, it's always easier for people to fall in line because they think they've been heard. That's so important. And I think also, you know, you, you talked about uh, the, the Goliath, you know, it challenges a leader because it's, um, it's, it, it's, it, you don't have to look for it. It's out there. You just need to recognize that it's out there. And, uh, and, and sometimes we also, we, we can imagine Golaj as a big, mighty person out there coming after us. But it can also be the small player out there who, you know, for most companies, you know, if, if you ask me who is going to be the leader in uh, in 50, 100 years from now, you know, I can't tell you who that would be because that company doesn't exist today. But for a well-established organization today, they need to think about those small people out there. And sometimes Goliath can disguise into David, isn't it? I really like what you said, Max. And going back to the question you said, who is a Goliath? Or how do you identify your Goliaths? I love what you said. You don't have to look for them. They're going to show up. They're going to knock on your door because they are too big to miss. The second thing is for the Goliaths that, are, that don't feel too big, anyone 
think of you have a change agenda in your mind or there's something that is really exciting to you. Who are the people you wish are not in the meeting so you feel they are not going to throw darts into the room? Those are your Goliaths. The mm. people you rather, the day you want to pass something, you don't want them to be there or you wish that was the day they went on vacation so you could run something through, those are your Goliaths. The people you rather avoid, those are your Goliaths. And if you want your change efforts to be more successful, you need to bring them on your table. You need to hear their perspectives. Why? If you don't, these are the people who, not intentionally, but they are just sharing their views, might end up sabotaging the work. Not that they're going to about to sabotage, but when other people say, hey, you know, this thing is happening, what do you think? You know, their response is like, hmm, and that enough speaks volumes. But when you get them on board, even if they're not overly excited, they can say, hey, you know, Max, you know, when the leader mentioned this, I had my concerns, but after I, you know, we had a discussion, I would have done it differently, but I can totally see why he wants to do this. And I can say, you know, I'm lockstep with him on this one. Guess what? Somebody who could have sabotaged your project has now become an ally, but it takes a lot of intentionality. It takes a lot of investment for leaders to do that. No, absolutely. No, I agree. And that takes us to the seventh uh, voice for the leader, which is the balcony friend. What makes the balcony friend different from the confidant that we saw earlier? So when you look at a confidant, a confidant doesn't have to be, it's in a confidant is somebody you really trust, right? Somebody you trust, there are some really big things that are happening. You want to make some decisions that, you know, will have big repercussions, whether for your career or for the organizations, for your customers, whoever that would be. A balcony friend is someone, you know, who is there, whether sends you a text once every day, once every week, who is checking on you more for your emotional health, who is understanding like, this person is going through a lot. How can I be there? Because yes, you know, leader, leadership isn't easy. You know, the leaders are often the last to get thank yous. When things go bad, you know, the leaders get the boat. When things go good, the leader has to give the credit to other people. So leaders are people too. So you need that emotional support, wherever it comes from, whether it's from your spouse, whether it's, you know, from a friend, wherever it comes from, but somebody that is just cheering you on. And even when you mess up, because as a leader, if you're doing your job, you're going to mess up, you're going to take some risks, you're going to drop the ball. Is somebody saying who put their arms around you and said, you know what? Yes, it was as bad as it seemed, but guess what? You're going to get over this. You know, I'm with you. I've seen you succeed in the past. You know, I've seen you not do well in the past, but trust me, every time you've fallen, you've always come back bigger and better. You need those voices in your ears. Those are your motivational tapes that are playing to you. And if you are feeling bad, you just say, hey, pal, Max, I'm having a bad day. And Max says, Richard, you got this. You know, think of why you're doing this. You want to make a difference in the lives of people. If it was easy, anybody would do it. And because it's hard, Max, you are the person for the job. Just hearing voices like that just brightens your day. You know, it gives you another reason to move on. And we, we all need that. You know, whether you have an official title or not, and I also believe everybody's a leader, everybody has the seed of greatness in them, we all need it in our lives to continually bring our best selves to work. Sorry, you know what? I'm going to save what you just said recently and play back to myself every time I've got uh, off there because it was uh, so good to, to hear and, uh, you know, so comforting. And you're right, we all need that voice. And uh, some days feel like we need to, to hear it uh, every day. Uh, so really, really thank you for that. So would you mind calling back again for, for our audience? Who are those seven uh, people? You know, just as a recap, so that people know, you know who are the seven people that you 
think are important for the leadership lens? No, absolutely. The trusted advisor, you know, I mentioned the trusted advisor. These are either your HR, your ops, your finance, chief of staff, the people who work very closely within your executive office. The key to the trusted advisor is treat them like an equal, surround yourselves with people whose voices you respect, create a culture whereby they can be bold. And my question to you, leader, how many times do people challenge what you're saying? Of course, in a respectful way, do they have the guts and the courage to do that? If not as much as you'd like, check out the environment you're creating for them. The second one is a coach. Having a coach is a sign of strength, not a weakness. Think of the best players in the world, Cristiano Ronaldo. Think of Simon Biles. Think of you know the Serena sisters. All of them have coaches. So if you want to go faster and further, get a coach. The third person is the sage. And when we are looking at the sage, this is somebody who has experience and wisdom, somebody who has been where you want to go. It's just like that um, saying that says, if you want to, when you stand on the shoulder of a giant, you see further. So it's important that every one of us gets a sage. The minority voices are the 80% of the people who are not in the boardroom, who are not in the leadership room, but these are the people who do the work. And the principle here is whoever should sweeps the room should choose the broom. If they are going to be doing the work, then at least hear them out, hear their voices. It's like the salespeople who are facing the customers. When you want to set targets or the specs, you want to make sure their voices are being heard because they are their frontline employees. The other one is a confidant. In a confidant is somebody, you know, you can go unscripted. You can share exactly what, you, what, you're, what you're going through in your mind. Some challenges that you're having, your organization is facing. Just, you know, somebody to hear you out, very important. The other one is the Goliath. And like we said earlier, the Goliaths are often too big to miss. Every one of us has a Goliath. Now, the thing is, what separates the A players from the B leaders is embracing your Goliaths. Goliaths also want the organization to be successful. The point is you have two different paths to get there. But listen to those voices, you know, to convert them to allies. The other one I mentioned again is the balcony friend. You know, that friend that tells you like, hey, yes, sometimes you're going to drop the ball. And if you're not dropping the ball, it means you're not trying hard enough get over yourself, get back in the game of life, you're gonna make it. And the last one we didn't talk about, which I put as a bonus, is taking time out to invest in the next generation of leaders. These are the people who are going to carry your legacy. When you are gone, they are the people who are going to translate that vision to make it sustaining. So making sure that you have time to develop those wonderful set of people. Thank you so much, uh, Richard. It's a lot of wisdom that you parted with us. Uh, in such a short uh, amount of time. And, uh, you know, I like to end my uh, interviews with uh, typical three questions and, you know, really helping people to carry on the journey. And um, what will be three or, or two or one book of leadership that you will recommend us uh, to, to, to read and uh, go further? Yeah, uh, there's this book I'm reading right now is from Tom Roth is life's greatest questions. And typically is answering that question from Martin Luther King, that life's most urgent and persistent question is what are we doing for others? You know, that's ultimately what leadership is about. So it's a really great read because I think automatically when you answer that question, it helps you to move from having a job to a career. If you're in a career, it moves you to a calling. So I think this is a really great one by Tom Roth. Um, another one, which again, I've been reading this book for 20 years and I still go back to it all the time is The Pursuit of Purpose by Dr. Miles Monroe is a phenomenal book as well. So I highly recommend it. And another book, which I have, which just got live, you know, on Amazon 
is from your very own Dr. Richard Oshibanjo, is the five essential things every leader must get right. So it's just launched on Amazon. So feel free to get that as well. So I just had to sneak in, sneak in that. <laughs> no, but this is a very important one to continue the conversation. So thank you so much, Richard. That was a really, really good uh, advice that you shared with us today. This was the Maxiao Leadership Podcast. Thank you for joining us. To listen to future episodes, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Until next time, keep being the leader everybody trusts and respects.